say something. Hello. Adventure. Love. Connection. Risk. Passion. Evolution. Play. Life. The Archetypal Tarot Podcast. Provocative mythology for the 21st century. We are bucking tradition and setting out on our own provocative path, going straight to the 22nd card of the tarot, the world. What kind of new mythology can we make from this power-packed set of symbols? And what does it mean to us in this century of ever-shifting paradigms and climate change? Our guest for this episode is Craig Chalkwist, who we think is a total badass of depth psychology. Craig is the department chair of East-West Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's also adjunct faculty at the Pacifica Graduate Institute, where he teaches eco-psychology. Craig is the author and editor of many books, including Terra Psychology, Reengaging the Soul of Place. Sandera and I sat down with Craig to discuss his work and everything from hobbits, alchemy, gods and goddesses, Carl Jung in the Red Book, The Avengers, and why he rarely teaches the hero's journey anymore. More information is on our show page at archetypist.com slash myth. And one more thing, you can now follow us on Twitter at at tarot podcast. And here's our conversation on the world, a new mythology with Craig Chalquist. Hey, and welcome to the Archetypal Tarot Podcast. I am Julian, and I'm here with Sundara and Craig Chalquist. We are beyond excited to be here. The spring equinox just happened, and our whole new model of the podcast is completely mixing it up. The last episode was about the fool, mostly, and passion, and we're going right to the other side of that with the world card today. What? The world? The world is the last card. It's card number 22. It's How do we go from 0 to 22? How did that happen? Because that's the way life happens sometimes. Okay, so this must mean a whole new mold for us. We're, we're breaking... The linear sequence? We're, we're breaking that whole thing? The, uh, the new motto of our podcast is provocative mythology for the 21st century. And the last time we talked about the world card was rebirth, new energies. It's a bigger world, more archetypes living in a more integrated way, moving away from a model of redemption into one of evolution, which includes a lot more. And we thought it was the perfect time to speak with Craig about his work and things, topics like the hero's journey and how it might relate to the world and our experience. And Craig, I uh, read something on your website about why you don't teach the hero's journey. Uh-oh. And I loved that. <laughs> and we've, we've looked at, in our podcast as kind of using that as a model for the model. But I think throughout all of it, we realized that the, the tarotic journey, far more interesting, far more inclusive. Um, Did you just say heroic? Yeah, yeah. Instead of heroic. That's good. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I like that. But I, I, I'm still <laughs> stuck in this mold because, you know, we're breaking this 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 linear path and I feel like I need to go meet a mentor about it. Craig, can you can you help <laughs> us? We're 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 just totally breaking this mold here, the hero's journey. So so tell us about your experience with the hero's journey, teaching it and and what conclusions you came to about that. I will try. (laughs) I actually, um, the first time I taught the hero's journey was to men who had been incarcerated. Mm. And um, I was in a a psychotherapy internship for six years. And we taught the usual stuff. Um, All the guys had been arrested for violent crimes. They'd all done jail or prison time. And then they came to us for additional punishment. 
<laughs> and counseling. And, um, <laughs> counseling. <laughs> they were d- delighted to be there. And, um, they had a year with us, actually, so we got to do a lot of things. Fortunately, the guy who trained me to do that work really knew what he was doing. He was great. And uh, Scott Barella. But um, not included in the court-mandated training was anything about myth. There was a mm-hmm. bit about story. The guys would tell their stories, you know, about how they wound up in the group. That was always really interesting. But um, I can't remember what gave me the idea, but uh, at some point I just brought it in to group. And I began to put it up on the board. And when Campbell talks about the journey beginning with the call to adventure and how it's often a rupture of some kind, I asked the guys if they could relate to that and if they could think about their arrest incident as a call to adventure, a painful one. Mm. And they really went deep with it and they took it in all different directions. They loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really enlivening. Uh, So that was the first time I taught it. And then I taught it a bunch of times in grad school and in other venues. But I think what um, changed it for me was deepening my knowledge of mythology across pantheons. And getting to know the hero a bit better, too, along the way, and seeing how incredibly wide that word is in our culture. Um, a lot of times, uh, when a word has that many meanings, it can, it can indicate that it's not really differentiated in our consciousness. So we just pile everything into it. Um, like the word love in this culture. Oh, <laughs> <You know>? boy. <laughs> right. And friendship. Yeah. yeah. Where's mm. everything, you know? Mm-hmm. So... When I saw the hero in mythology, there were certain characteristics that showed up in the hero's journey that Campbell talks about, and there were other ones that don't. And the more I went into it, the more I thought, you know, I know people who actually seem to me to have been born into the archetype of the hero, and they're not like people who follow other archetypes at all. So I began to think that it was problematic to, to suggest to everybody that the hero was, was their path. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the non-hero? What about the people who aren't culture um, awakeners? You know, what about the rest of us? And there's a really nice um, piece in the first Hobbit movie that just came out, uh, where Gandalf is talking to Galadriel. And Galadriel, I think of as mythically as the wise woman, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Sophia, mm-hmm. surrounded with light, and Gandalf the wizard. There's a line that didn't appear in the book. The Hobbit, but that I think Tolkien would have agreed with, I think is that bears directly on this. Bilbo Baggins is the little Hobbit, you know, all of three feet high. Mm-hmm. He's about to go fight a dragon and accompany the dwarves on this great adventure. And Galadriel says to Gandalf, "Why him? Why why the halfling? Why mm-hmm. you know?" And I love Gandalf's response. <laughs> He's, he says, "I don't know, Saruman, who's the the head of his order." who eventually becomes a corrupt wizard, you know. He says, Saruman thinks that only great power can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I found that it is the small things, the ordinary deeds of everyday folk who hold the darkness at bay. Mm -hmm. Uh, The simple things like kindness and love. And he says, why, Bilbo? Um... Perhaps because I'm afraid, and he gives me courage. Mm. That's a brilliant line. Mm. That was perfect, <laughs> and we can all relate to that. We yeah. don't. There's no. There's for me the relationship of striving um, with the hero and the constant. You're going. You're going it alone. 
Um, and that's, you know, very egoic at, as it's seen. And, and uh, that's brilliant. We can immediately connect to that, you know, just everyday kindness. Mm -hmm. That's the damage. I mean, what you're pointing to, to me anyway, is you're pointing to the damage the hero does. Yeah. And especially, in, I, I'm going to go with American culture because guess what? That's where I grew up because uh, I don't see it as much in other cultures. But that like, it's all about you. You have to be the hero and the pioneer. You yep. pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And that's all that life is about. But our lived experience is doesn't work with that model. It yeah. really, really doesn't. You can't have a relationship. And here you don't see heroes having relationships. You see them with accoutrement. You know, they have sidekicks and they have maybe the girlfriend that they rescue. And yeah, um, yeah it's, a, it's a model much closer to home than the hero. I watched um, all of the uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Ring films over the wintertime. It was a great time to hibernate and watch those kinds of things and um you know in reflecting about it deeply because as a kid I was like oh I want to be an elf like they're so beautiful and they live in this magical land with the waterfalls and floating islands I don't know I'm not making that up. but um <laughs> but that's what it seemed to me um but in looking at the way the hobbits live I'm like oh I really actually would like to be a hobbit i mean they're just so earthy and they're happy and they know how to party and, they're, and you know they're and they eat really well they eat really yeah. well <laughs> they're they're funny and flirtatious and um i just thought oh yeah being a hobbit that's the way to be like that that looks really really great <laughs> yeah and so we have these uh films and there's they're quite powerful high grossing films they're speaking to modern times in a great way and so this may just tie in well with another one of your uh, blogs and what you've written about reviving the gods. Mm. And so how is it in modern day? How can we relate to this idea of gods? How do they show up? And um, how can we be in relationship to them? Is it through films like this and, and um, musing on the hobbits? Or how does that show up and what can we do? Some years ago, I was camping a lot. At that time, I was eating more meat than I do now, actually. But um, so I, when I camped, I would have like hot dogs and hamburgers and stuff like that on the fire. Learning a lot about eco psychology and ecology itself, and eco psych being the study of um, our psychological relations with nature. And um, I noticed that whenever I camped, I'd cook up a couple of hamburgers and I would invariably drop one in the fire. And no matter how careful I tried to be, it would always flip over right in the fire. You know? <laughs> so I was, I don't know what got me thinking about this, but um, it struck me one day that uh, I was, there I was out in, you know, what's left of the natural world anyway. And I wasn't um, thinking about who else was out there with me. I thought, you know, I was treating it just like a campsite, like a, like a human setting, mm -hmm. you know? but I was surrounded by all these nature powers. And um, I knew from mythology that Demeter, um, or Demeter, as they like mm -hmm. to call her in this country, is the goddess of that that kind of you know feeding and and the fruit of the harvest and all that. And so whatever we call her, because she appears in many forms across pantheons in different faces, you know, I wasn't thanking her, and I felt like, especially being outside, I should. So um, I, I began doing that silently when I was eating, and the hamburger stopped flipping over. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't taking it and you were giving it <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so 
there's a, I, I think there's a progression happening where historically the gods in one form or another serve, they spend their, their time in certain frameworks that we can understand. So they appear in a certain form. Like in a lot of societies, the, the gods are kind of like people that stand behind the weather or what have you, you know. But then collective consciousness moves onward and the frameworks die because they're not adequate anymore. So then the stories are all about the death of the gods. And the people who live in those times think that the world is ending. But in the longer view, they're actually seeing something that has probably happened as long as there's been humans on this planet. That it's natural for the frameworks to wear out. <clears throat> so at that point, all the sensitive and intuitive and artistic people and dramatic people have to listen in for how the gods want to return to the world. So um, in Young's Red Book, there's a scene that I, I think of as one of the most important in that book. It's where Young encounters a heroic god, Gilgamesh. Mm -hmm. He calls him Isdubar in the book. And um, this, this, by the way, is one of another of the reasons why I think the hero is not a good model for a lot of people. It's a great model for people who are archetypal heroes, mm -hmm. who have a personal myth that they're living that's about heroism. But um, Campbell tended to present the hero in idealistic terms. The hero is the great striver and he's the, the great seeker after knowledge and all that. But when you look at actual heroes, they're very ambivalent people as far as things like morality go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, Gilgamesh was incredibly violent. He chopped down entire forests. Cuchulain, mm -hmm. um, the Irish hero, hero, was so hot after battle that he had to be dipped in nine different baths to cool himself down. And even then he didn't calm down. He was, you know, a lot of the heroes end up dead because they never outgrow their impulsiveness. Heracles mm. is an example. He killed his whole family. How, how individuative is that? You know, I don't want to follow that example. <laughs> so anyway, so Young uh, had a visionary experience where he encountered Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh was sick because, uh, as Gilgamesh figure put it in the, in the Red Book, um, he had been poisoned by science. He was trying to get to the moon, and Young said, well, you can't get to the moon. There's no way, because the moon's circling the earth. And then Gilgamesh fell over and said, I'm dying. And, you know. <laughs> so Young realized in a flash that Gilgamesh, that a god image, is a psychical being. That was an enormous step forward in human consciousness, that realization. So, And then when Young realizes this, he goes through a series of uh, rituals with this figure and it turns into energy and so there's a famous picture nobody understood until recently until the red book was published of um, there's a guy who's meditating and I think the caption says something like Vedic fire ritual or something but there's a something on the ground a small egg and there's this huge outpouring of flame if you've seen this picture you know what I'm talking about um, that picture goes with that part of the red book so young releases all the, the psychic energy, the libido, in the god by transforming it. Mm. So because Jung reimagines the god, it comes back to life in a different form. Mm -hmm. So he, in the first part of the Red Book, he talks about killing the hero psychologically and the death of the hero. In the, the second part, the, the, from that point forward, it's about the resurrected hero and how different it is. So notice the progression the the old gods start to die and there's all these great stories you know the great god pan is dead and julian the apostate um having an encounter with apollo's oracle saying there's no more oracles coming out of here that you know we're gone 
over and over and over. So there's a period of godlessness. <clears throat> and then, um, then industrialization, the scientific revolution, further contribute to all this. But then there's this encounter with Jung. And then there's the return of the goddess in many ways, too. So I think we live in a really exciting time where we're coming out of that long period of the supposed death of the gods. So once again, they're asking us to reimagine them. Mm. And so what I suspect is, and I it, you know, have to see if this, if this can be worked with in some way, I think that the next step is to experience the gods out in the world again, but not losing what Jung gave us. So he told us that, that the gods are in us as well as outside, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that the gods are psychological, but he tended to hold them primarily as psychological. Mm -hmm. yeah. A constellation of, of ideas and concepts. Right. Yeah. yeah. My, you know, the, uh, my collect or not my unconscious, but the collective unconscious as I experience it, you know, creates these uh, archetypal images. And so that's inside of us right? and between us to some extent. But I'm wondering as a result of, and that the example with um, the camping example is a small one of many, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, if we think of the gods as outside of us too, mm -hmm. which is how indigenous people have and continue to think of them but we keep the archetypal idea, then we can think of the gods not as people behind the weather or as archetypes that are just inside us, but as animated presences that we live inside of. Yeah. And that's a different imagining, I think. So Jung turns the gods into archetypes. I think we can turn archetypes into gods mm -hmm. by showing, seeing how they show up outside as well as inside. Yeah, because if they're outside, we're going to want to take care of the outside. And and yeah. we're recording this podcast at a time where basically it's just been broken to California that we have a year left of water, drinking water supply. Yeah. Um, so I think everyone is digesting this um, and coming to terms with each person's uh, relationship to what's around and how much we appreciate it or not and what to do about that. Um, and so um, you did a wonderful presentation called Earthrise. You were the winner of the Opus Archives uh, research grant a couple years back now. And, um, and it was about the, the new mythology for um, this time. What, what do we need to be trying on as a new world myth? Um, and you came up with basically the image of the world itself that we've attained through technological advancements, being able to be in space and see the world as a whole and that we're all a part of it. Um, can you give us a little bit of, about that presentation or, or what basically the... Um, the world. Give us the world, <laughs> Can you do that for us? The world in five minutes. <laughs> the world in five minutes. minutes. Go. <laughs> the world at your doorstep. There's a motto. Um, well, I have to lean on Young and Campbell uh, because Young... Um, it's funny, when he was an old man, he broke his foot, and then he ha basically had a, some sort of a accident that put him into a coma, and he had a vision of the earth from space. And when he came out of the coma, he said that it was the most beautiful thing he ever saw. So he, in a way, he anticipates earth rise. Mm. And this um, was in the third, third, 30s, 40s? Um, it was later in his life. Yeah, it was later in his life, but it was far, it was long before Mid -40s, we actually yeah. got into space. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
Campbell, before he died, after we had got into space, brought up that image of Earthrise. He, that's what put me onto it, actually. And uh, when he was talking to Bill Moyers about it in The Power of Myth, he said, I think this is the... I think this image is the image of the new mythology to come, where you look at Earth and there's no divisions of nations or states or any of that. And he made a comment in an interview that really struck me, that he didn't say in the Bill Moyers interview. And I think he was talking to Sam Keen, and he said, when you, when you think about all the dualisms that we've been through over the centuries, you know, the heavens are up there, spirits up there, um, matter and all the gross stuff is down there, you know. He said when you look at Earthrise, it dispels and makes impossible that dualism, because mm -hmm. what you see is that the Earth is in the heavens. So there, it's a huge psychic shift. Mm -hmm. And the picture itself was taken on the day before Christmas, mm -hmm. which I think is synchronistically interesting. And the response to mm -hmm. it was visceral and aesthetic. It was right from the heart. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, let's study it or Know, the astronauts were overwhelmed by it. Yeah, and this happens so regularly to astronauts even now, aboard mm -hmm. the space station, for instance, that they have a term for it. They call it the overview effect. Mm -hmm. You're wow. walking by a window as you're busy doing your 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 work up there, and then you get seized by the beauty of the Earth, and you forget what you were doing. Mm -hmm. So it's re it happens to everybody who goes up there, pretty much. And there's a whole series of um, quotations from astronauts in a book called um, The Home Planet. And uh, beautiful photographs of the Earth, too. But um, astronauts from many different countries describe what it was like to, to see Earth from orbit. And uh, there was one mythological statement in there from Taylor Wang, a Chinese-American astronaut. And he said that there was a Chinese uh, story about uh, a wise and beautiful princess who was set upon by thieves uh, who were going to cut the jewels from her fingers but when they realized how wise and beautiful she was uh, right on the spot they decided that they were going to be her protectors instead and he says that's how it felt for me to see the earth from orbit for the first time mm. so there's many comments like that um, there's a there was an astronaut from Saudi Arabia who said uh, on the first day up we were all pointing to our countries on the second day to our continents, and on the third, we were only aware of one Earth. So there's a, a huge shift in this image. And um, I don't think, and I don't think Campbell thought, that there will ever be a single mythology for everybody on the planet. <clears throat> I don't think it would even be desirable. Um, mm -hmm. We're far too diverse. Um, there's local stories, and there's regional stories, and you know, perhaps planetary stories too. But it's one thing to talk about mythologies, but another to talk about a mythic image, a mythologem that can give rise to many different stories for many different cultures, and I suspect Earthrise is an example of that. I love that because uh, it's it's back to that, you know, the, the hero isn't the one story that we need to follow. Yeah. Um, we're not looking for one paradigm to fit everybody. And this is what I found working with uh, the stone images. Mm -hmm. um, as some of our audience members are aware of the work uh, that I do as well. Um, and what I love about working with cards that have images on them that can be interpreted in many different ways is that it can draw out the, the freshest story that that person is living at this time. And, um, and that the point is to keep telling the stories. And, yeah. and, and through the telling of those stories, uh, you can see changes and you can note changes. 
um, and it can reveal just great things that are happening personally and collectively. You know, Tolkien, your comment reminds me of a comment that he made in his letters where he distinguishes between allegory and application. And it's similar to the distinction Jung makes between a sign and a symbol. A sign is something fixed. You know, so train going into a tunnel, sexual, that's a sign, fixed, you know. Mm -hmm. No doubt about, a court, apparently, anyway, no doubt about what it supposedly means, you know. A stop sign means stop, you know. Um, those are signs. They're not true symbols from Jung's standpoint. A symbol is always mysterious. It's always open. And in the same way Tolkien said, you know, there's, there's turning stories into allegories, which is reductive. And he made a comment once. He, he got a letter from someone who said, well, aren't the orcs in your story actually communists? And, and he said, well, that's just, that, that makes as much sense as saying communists are orcs. And, you know, <laughs> and somebody else said, well, the ring, that comes from Wagner, right? And he said, well, the only thing that's similar about the two rings is that they're round. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he hated that, you know, mm -hmm. and rightly so. He, he said, mm -hmm. we have to stand up for the story first. We mm -hmm. have to, you know, protect that. And so he said, but, but on the other hand, he, he wasn't against any interpretations or all interpretations. That He said it's useful to see how a story is relevant, and that's what he meant by application. Mm. So the more interpretations a myth, for instance, can generate, um, the more alive it is. But as soon as you come to a single interpretation, you've turned it into a, a zombie, an ideology. Right. Doesn't that... <clears throat> circle back to kind of the hero's journey because it has been so heavily concretized and I, for me I see it as like we need to do that we need to like oh I gotta, I gotta get my arms around this and it really has caught on and uh, for a very very long time but it's kind of dying now honestly yeah. um I have I worked somebody who the first course that we put out a couple of years ago was using the movie Ratatouille in the hero's journey because you can see it through that yeah. the take that you know, we had on that um, was more of your own, it was your hero's journey, but it was like looking at it from the choice of fate, fate and destiny. You're fated to live within the tribe and the hero archetype is pulling you to leave the tribe. But the ultimate goal through the process of that journey is to uncover and recognize your own destiny, those powers. Yeah. Like in the movie, the rat has to really see that he is meant to cook even though everything about his existence says that he should be the last thing in the kitchen. Mm. So that teaching the hero's journey that way, we were super excited about it, but we also, in talking with other people, were like, oh, this course, they're like, oh, no, the hero's journey. I'm so done with that. Like, <laughs> I can't. Or And what I, you know, and I identified with this too is like, you know what? I'm tired. Yeah. I am X ages, you know, years on this planet, and I don't want to be a hero. Like, I've done that. Um, and... Follow and, your bliss while you're at it. And, and following, <laughs> following your bliss, but that seeing the hero's journey in so many ways die, at least at a certain level, is we have to because we can't see it from Earthrise. Yeah. There's no hero's journey. Yeah. It's, the heroes oh, that, yeah. it's the heroes that got us into space, though. That's right. So, you know, it's yeah. that. Mm -hmm. It is a heroic thing to do yeah. from everybody in Houston to the actual people who went up there. Yeah. But from that perspective... Um, to me, the, the end of the hero's journey is bringing everything back. Right, yeah. And that's what, you know, that's what they did. And I'm a fan of, um, so Edgar Mitchell, uh, right. one of the guys on that flight and starting the Institute of Noetic Sciences and that the effect that it had on him, hardcore yeah. scientist, when he saw the planet and went, yeah. whoa, I mean, there's no 
we're not, I don't even think we're supposed to have words for that experience. We have symbols for that, which are much stronger. And when we were talking about the the Taroic journey, thank you, coined that one. (laughs) I'm sure someone said it, but I'm not going to, I'll try to take credit, but it's not going to stick. But that, when we talked about the world, it is that moment of you, you've got your little tiny heroic journey that you've done in relationship with other people, but you do get the the rebirth place is the world is that larger perspective where you, you have transcended, but you have to include. And that does kind of happen in the hero's journey. But what emphasized in the hero's journey is really more about the self. You get the boon and you have to go back and share it. I don't think we have enough information or, you know, people don't talk about trying to share your boon or trying to share that because that's harder than the whole journey most of the time. Yeah. Going back to your people to try to, you know, share it, like, that's another 10 years, probably. Um, you really see that in the film Contact. Mm, mm-hmm. If you look at um, Jodie Foster's character as a true heroic character, mm-hmm. she has a horrible time bringing back what she what, what mm-hmm. resulted from her journey. Mm-hmm. And she does, at, at the end of the film, it's great because you see her actually doing that, actually mm-hmm. integrating it into her life. But most of the time, you don't get to see that at all. What's the curse of that Greek um, figure, the woman who Cassandra, she knows all the truth, and but no one will believe her. Like that's that feels so familiar. The line, the line. I love that movie Contact too, and really the best line is they should have sent a poet. Yeah, yeah. Period. And that's that's to me. It's the role. It's the role of the artist, and to get directly, um, whether using words or symbols is. The, there's a truth beyond the truth that you could ever write or express. And to me, that's my long-time appeal of Jung is, you know, I think the soul speaks symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the tarot cards and all of these things, that's, that's what I work with them. That's why I work with them. They're amazing symbols that, that we can relate to and, and we can see a pattern in and have a, a, you know, a moment where you realize this has been going on a long time. I'm not the only one dealing with this. Yeah. But also you will have your own specific relationship with the symbols on the cards and the, the archetypal experience through it. And the world card to me is that rebirth moment of like, oh, one, it's not all about me. <laughs> Two, whoa. Like we're this, we're a part of this large, incredible experience. And when you were talking about... Um, uh, the experience at Earthrise and your work on it, I immediately thought of near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. And it seems really, really similar what people have reported back mm-hmm. of that you are, you're at a great distance, but you're still completely connected mm-hmm. to everything that's there. That's a whole different you know, ball game. We're not walking around. We can't take that in, but I think we have to at times. That reminds me of a, a Welsh myth. Um, there's a character named uh, Mana Wedden. Um, the Irish call him Mananan, which is where the name for the Isle of Man comes from. Mm. He's not heroic. Uh, Mana Wedden is a, he's an older gent, and he's a little tricky and clever. And I always think of the TV detective Columbo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more, you know. <laughs> and the story's about, not about the hero who he's friends with, but he has to rescue the hero through non-heroic behavior, through hard work, through looking after the hero's wife, who's distraught that the hero has been kidnapped by magical forces. And Manawadden um, achieves his goal of the release of the hero through trickery. 
So it's, a, you know, after which the hero says, I'm sorry I was so impulsive and got in trouble. And his mother, Rhiannon, says the same thing, too, because she gets kidnapped as well. So it's, it's such a great look at the post-hero. You know, the person, and they stay, there's an indication that uh, Mano Wadman was maybe a warrior when he was younger and things like that, but not anymore. And, but he's the, he's the right man in the right place at the right time, not the brave charger in, you know, where angels fear to tread. Mm. Teacher of heroes. So there's a lot of strong feminine um, influences that are coming through in the stories that you're telling today. And, um, and uh, it's making me curious about uh, what you are going to be speaking about soon, the silver tradition. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about that and, and what's happening there? I'm teaching a course at CIS on it right now. And I've never been entirely happy with a term that Jung used, he actually got it from people like Goethe, and it goes even farther back before him, um, the golden chain, or the golden tradition. And uh, the alchemist used the term as well, and it, it refers to the perennial philosophy, the idea that there's an unbroken line of students and teachers of esoteric knowledge all the way back to ancient Egypt. It was a really big hit in um, antiquity, this idea. And it's gotten a lot of criticism from scholars, especially uh, Jorge Ferrer, who I work with at um, CIIS. And I've just instinctively not liked it much because it's very solar. You know, there's this literal uh, line of teaching that goes from this person to that person, and except when it doesn't. It's like there's big gaps in it. So, you know. <laughs> and um, the imagery is all very you know, masculine, and um, it just it, it felt incomplete to me. And um, at one point, uh, several months ago, I just had a lot of dreams about the moon and silver and uh, things like that. And then I thought, you know, if we, if we look at, let's say, Gnosticism, alchemy, and what we now call eco-spirituality as more, um, not like a linear progression, but more as manifestations of something that's just in the air that has to do with animism, it's suggested in Gnosticism, but not fully developed. Um, it's more present in alchemy, and then in Earth spirituality, it's really there, you know. But what if what if it's not a literal transmission? What if there's a lunar tradition or a silver tradition that starts with, let's say, it probably goes all the way back to shamanism, actually. But you know, let's say the the early Gnostics and their emphasis on Sophia as the soul of the world. Uh, there are lots of really powerful earth-connected goddesses and Gnosticism and some um, just some that are very different from our usual picture of passive goddess figures, for mm -hmm. instance, you know, like there's a Gnostic goddess named Maria who's um, considered a, she's an emanation of Sophia and um, in some versions of, the, of this story, she's the daughter of Noah hmm. and when he builds the ark, he says that there's no women allowed on board. But she's so powerful, she breathes her breath on the ark and burns it down. And so he reconsiders. <laughs> it's probably a good thing to do at that point. <laughs> and so she gets aboard. In another story, there there's characters in the Gnostic world called Archons, who are, you can think of them as the shadows of archetypes. So there's angelic aeons, who all have names like insight and imagination and uh, light and discernment and things like this. And they have shadowy counterparts that rule the world, evil figures, uh, power principles. 
And so the, the Archons at one point attack Maria because she hasn't, she's a potential bearer of light, a potential Gnostic. So she calls out to, to the ultimate god who's genderless uh, for help, and an angel appears. So anybody else, if you called out for help and an angel showed up, we'd probably be really grateful. Or we'd go, ah, we'd be in awe, you know. But her, her being her, she goes, who are you? <laughs> I called out for God and you showed up. What's this, you know? Mm -hmm. So the angel has to explain to her, I am Elilith who stand next to God and I'm this and I'm that and I'm here to teach you your spiritual ancestry. And then she goes, oh, okay, go ahead. You know? <laughs> oh, I want that to happen so, to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Push the angels around. So. <laughs> maybe maybe but, some element of active imagination could could come close to that. But. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm hearing the story and seeing how that probably happens to all of us. This, some, they don't show up as way. an angel. They show up as somebody at the grocery store or the person that yeah. sits next to you on the plane. And, yep. you know, we want the pretty package. But I think a lot of times I just call it grace. Like grace shows up and yeah. it's not always pretty. Yeah. Roka said every angel is dangerous. And what is it? what was that part you mentioned about that story of Young when he tries to turn... Um, the uh, old man into a symbol or something, this yeah. uh, figure he comes across, the, an old prophet, um, and he says, uh, we are real, not symbols. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I just love, if we're talking about how we can relate to the gods mm -hmm. in this time, that, that at any moment we have access into our inner lives and to, mm -hmm. and outer lives, to dialogue and to, um, sink into her imagination and have a very rich relationship there. Yeah. And when Young first went in in the Red Book, everything's a desert. It's barren. He's been very outward, motivated in his career and so forth uh, with people, and he goes in and it's a desert, right? And so things have to grow there and be yeah. seeds need to be planted. The rain needs to come in in the form of attention in these areas. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I just love working this way. And it's just amazing what comes up when I do readings with people. Mm. And uh, they'll tell a story. And that's just the first part of it is that you see the images. You have, you know, you kind of have ideas of what it might be. You tell a story. And then if you sink down into that in the present moment and you can actually dialogue with one of those characters. And it's not a dialogue like, tell me uh, what you can do for me. Tell me what I should do. Yeah. Like, would you meet a friend that way? Would you come up to somebody and go, hey, what's your name? What can you do for me? Yeah. <laughs> and maybe we do do that in some of our society. And um, and that's that would feel pretty offensive, though. That's so, the Christopher Columbus approach. Right. You land mm -hmm. on the island go, nice to meet you. Where's the gold? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, and we're taking over the lands. How can we be listeners and, and uh, carry on this dialogue and build up this uh, relationship in a very rich way so that our meat doesn't fall into the fire? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, uh, I mean, it's basic to Jung and, and even Freud, actually. He called it primary process. Fantasy is the primary process. So underneath the plans and the schemas and the abstractions and the cognitive stuff is fantasy. Usually unconscious, actually. I love that. That's one of the things I love about depth psychology. It has the nerve, you know, more than any other form of psych that I know of, to say it's all based on fantasy and image and emotion. That's the psyche. Everything else is a superstructure. So accessing it directly is, yeah, 
fantasy. That's Jung talked about active imagination, having imaginary conversations or imaginal, to use Corban's word. Um, it's not just made up. The figures have their own attitudes and their own opinions. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, it's American culture with its um, its puritanical streak that has forgotten about fantasy, but you can't box it up. I mean, look how popular the Avengers are right now. It's just out all over the place. Mm -hmm. And um, it's going to be there whether we want it to be or not, so we might as well swim in it. Um, other cultures mm -hmm. look at us. I mean, they ha go to Brazil and you can go to Carnival. You can even go to Switzerland and go to Carnival. Mm -hmm. I mean, we look at the Swiss and say, boy, what a bunch of polite, uptight people. Not at all. They know how to party. <laughs> Once a year, anyway. <laughs> you know? Fantasy has been put into the shadow yeah. so much. It's um, really the repressed. It's it's yeah. really repressed, but I think the word par partially is part of, well, not part of the problem, but that word, it holds the weight of all of that shadow. And wherever you use, again, the imagination or um, the, the more modern word I see people using is visioning. Although yeah. visioning seems a little, for me, it feels a little less free. Yeah. than fantasy like I personally like the appeal of fantasy but it also comes with it's the ba the shadow baggage but also that like you will get lost and I think people intuitively are not only afraid of the shadow but because if you haven't had an act of imagination and fantasy you very easily and probably will for your own good hopefully get sucked into that fantasy but there's that fear of you're going to get lost in that, whereas the word vision feels like you're creating a structure yeah. that you can work within. And I'm not saying that any one of these is better, but like the language right now is all around visioning. You have to vision your future and you, yeah. you vision that. But it is, to me, at the end of the day, it is if you don't include fantasy within that, which is where I think all that energy is going to come up through then you'll just end up with, like, I have this beautiful vision board now, and I put it there, and I'm done. The emotion basically will get drained will get drained out of it. Or just come out in, like, Avengers, which I think are great movies. They're so much fun. But Yeah. You can join our um, Archetypes and Movies Club that we, oh, cool. <laughs> that we uh, yeah. visit on the uh, podcast here and there. We love coming up with movies that anyway, I wanna reflect it. I want to respond to what you just said, but mm. I, this is a total sidebar. Mm. Um, have you seen the... the the teaser for the new Avengers movie. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the longer version where they're all trying to lift Thor's hammer? I really like the guy who plays Thor because he's, I mean, they, they don't stick to the stories exactly, mm -hmm. but his character is a lot like what's in the others, you know? I love that where they all try to lift it up and Iron Man has the scientific explanation, this theory, and mm -hmm. Thor says, oh, I have a better theory. You're all unworthy. I love that. That's so Thor. <laughs> I love that you brought that. You know, the, it is archetypally, it's a fascinating trailer. Yeah. Because they've got what's the bad guy's name? The new, the mega. Oh, uh, Ultron. Ultron. Or, yeah. Using the song they uses from Pinocchio, yeah. which to me is fascinating. It's like yeah. I got no strings to hold me down, and what Ultron is this representation of the outcropping of. Iron Man and this collection of Avengers who are all there to do to do good yeah. and you know Pinocchio which is the story of I just want to be a real boy yet he is 100% created so from the nerdy Jungian perspective I watched that and went that is interesting what is happening with us right now yeah. that that choice was made because I totally believe it's our unconscious bubbling up and we do have to take that Earthrise view to start to see things symbolically of like, what, what, why, why, 
is Pinocchio. What yeah. we're struggling, we want to find the real me, and and I think mm. his his the shadow character Ultron is just filled with rage yeah. and revenge, and it's I my little pop theory is it's because he's dying for authenticity, yeah, and hasn't been can't touch it because. It's, he can't do. He can't be as evil and greedy as he is, and be authentic at the same time. So, yeah, he's what happens when you repress fantasy, mm. and when you restrict it to visioning too. I mean, the people who created the atomic bomb were great visioners. Mm-hmm. You know, they they had an agenda. They um, they did what what Tolkien would call allegorizing. They used their fantasy for something destructive, and that's the thing. Whether whether you use it as a tool uh, without understanding the deeper implications of it or you repress it, it kind of amounts to the same thing. It possesses you. It takes over. Yeah. And they had the great excuse, well, if we don't do it, somebody will. Yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, it's it's Pandora's box. It's that mythology of, like, well, someone's going to open this box. And, yeah. you know, egotism of, like, well, we'll be able to control it. Well, guess what? Sometimes you can't. No. It's out. To me, that's yeah. a dividing line of a new, that is the new mythology. That's the new... Paradigm, paradigm that you that you talk about of that that changed everything and yeah. all the generations of people. Myself, nuclear power has been around since before I was born. So yeah. for me, it might as well always been around. Period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when Oppenheimer saw the blast, the test blast in the desert, he quoted from the Bhagavad Gita, which mm-hmm. is a mythical book. You know, about um, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. There, there was a guy standing next to him, like Bainbridge, the physicist. He, he had a more American version. He, he looked at the blast and he said, now we are all sons of bitches. <laughs> <laughs> Just the cowboy way of saying it. And that's what happens when you get possessed by this. Yeah. You see the results. It's the Frankenstein piece. I mean, Mary Shelley called it way before any of this. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, you, the doctor in the book just, you know, all I want to do is be an alchemist. I just want to create life and I want to save people from death and, but then when he actually sees the monster, then is when he realizes too late that it has taken on an autonomous form. That's the, that's the great... I think that's one of the things that people fear about fantasy is that, that it'll do something like that. And it can, but primarily when it's been repressed for a really long time. So it's necessary to give it life somewhere. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen the film yet, but my guess about that Ultron figure mm-hmm. is... Um, you know, that's that's a complex of some kind for Tony Stark. Mm. It's some part of him that he never fed, that he never looked at, never owned up to. And so now, like Frankenstein's monster, it's taking on a symptomatic form. There's a father relationship to the um, the precursor to Ultron, Jeff Bridges, his character. So, yeah, we could spend a lot of time looking at that <laughs> one, that's for sure. But to, to roll this back into kind of the world, the... Uh, and where we are right now, we're recording this the day after the spring equinox yeah. and and the, the rebirth of that. And our listeners um, are a diverse group of people. There are people interested in psychology, people interested in the tarot, people who just, for some crazy reason, like listening to Sundar and I, <laughs> do we... <laughs> do there's two of you out there anyway um we love you um, but the the there's so many i think rich takeaways from our conversation but i would love to hear from you craig to this group of people who are using this mythology and are looking for a newer mythology or another way to be to take the old and live it in the new 
what are your some more of your ideas around you know the world earthwise fantasy mm. that that people can be working with you have I a like special to, certificate program kind of addressing yeah. these issues right yeah the key? so we have an online certificate in applied mythology where we look at some of this um, it's how to create news stories for emerging myths so we have a look at that and then it's also how do we rejuvenate the old stories so they're still relevant which they often are that's why they keep recurring mm -hmm. you know campbell pointed that out there the myths are all over the place all the time so if we can think of them in modern terms then we can dialogue with them instead of acting them out unconsciously so that's a nice thing i'd also encourage people to experiment with the idea that when you're fantasizing or dreaming or in a state of reverie that um, and Sundara was touching on this earlier with the imaginal figures talking back to young that they're not just yours <clears throat> that the idea that um, you're dialoguing or, or rather not dialoguing making something up instead of dialoguing that that's a, a Western prejudice and an American one in particular that splits us from the world and so the, the remedy for that would be to play with all of this in a spirit of play the idea that when you have a rich fantasy life and when you're in, engaging with your dreams and intuitions that you're also speaking to the people that have been known as the invisibles or um, they go by many different names but just the animate powers of the world that the world's dreaming its dreams and fantasies through you as well and uh, when you when you think of that old phrase anima mundi which means world soul um, there's an, there's very old ideas in many mythologies about how the world soul dreams through us. So I think that that's an, a creative and um, enlivening way of holding it, that it's not just my personal thing here. It's got my personal stamp on it because it's happening in me. But if I go deep enough with it, then the world itself is speaking through all of that, including fantasy. We are the dreamers of the dreams. I like that. That's perfect. Everything else, Miss Sandera? Well, I am very tempted to uh, take your uh, certificate of applied myth myself and I was really super uh, pleased to see that it's quite affordable it's like $150 for yeah. what is it five weeks yep mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so it just seems like a wonderful way to be in a community discussing these things furthering them furthering one's own individual path uh, of bringing active imagination and all kinds of things to the world in your own unique way so you it sounds like you do it seasonally, so um, depending on when you hear this podcast, you can uh, look into it by going to childquest.com and uh, seeing what, when the next uh, group is starting up. Yep. And we'll put yeah, it on so. the show page. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank Excellent. you so much for joining us, Craig. This was wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. The Archetypal Tarot Podcast is hosted by me, Julianne Javeau, and Sandera Quackenbush. More information on the show can be found at archetypist.com slash myth. Have a question? We love hearing from you. Email us at atpodcast at archetypist.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at tarotpodcast, and you can find us on Facebook. This podcast is a production of Both and Media. Our groovy new theme music is by The Lunar Group. Special thanks to our voiceover talent, Eric, Gael, Mila, Nina, Fuzz, Dave, Fanchon, Mike, and Tabby. Stay tuned for our next episode, where Sundara takes on the Death Card with guest Lupa Greenwolf. 
the maker of the Tarot of Bones. Thanks for listening. Thank you.